this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 85th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. I was saddened to hear the news of the passing of Edgar Schein on January 26, 2023. Edgar Schein made a notable mark on the field of organizational development in many areas, including career development, group process consultation, and organizational culture. His early published work included organizational psychology in 1965. But there are two pieces of what I call his seminal work, which had a profound influence on me and my development with human and organizational development and learning teams. Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling was published in 2013. And his last work, Humble Leadership, The Power of Relationships openness and trust in 2018. Please join me and celebrate the life and work of Edgar Schein as he speaks with a group of people at technology giant Google about his work in 2016. Edgar, you'll never be missed but never forgotten. Your work carries on within each of us. Thank you for all you have done. In the spirit of your work, I'd like to start with a very open-ended question. And, and ask you who you are here today with us. Well, I, I'm first of all <clears throat> very pleased to be here. Uh, this is my third visit to Google, and uh, they are always fascinating visits. Uh, it's almost like age meets youth. <laughs> uh, and I think one of the things that is me is curiosity. And so curiosity about what's going on in Silicon Valley, in Google, in all these startups, the world is changing before our very eyes very rapidly. Uh, what could be better for me than to engage in that and uh, share some of what I'm learning as I encounter uh, what will be one of the themes of the next book, uh, Humble Consulting, which is how to give real help faster. I've begun to adapt to speed. So. <laughs> we, can, we can all learn with you then. Um, wonderful. And I know we'll look forward to Humble Consulting coming out so we can read it and continue to learn uh, from you and with you. I, I actually came uh, to our conversation with a set of questions more tailored to your more recent, The Humble Inquiry book, but I actually would like to have us start a bit broader and, and then move into some of the, 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 the question. And, and broader in terms of culture, and we spoke a little bit over our lunch today <laughs> about um, culture as a multidimensional, um, we have many cultures, we don't just have a culture, and it's within those cultures that we choose our behavior. And um, kind of assess our context. So if I could ask you to share some of your thoughts about those many cultures. 
I think the, as I was thinking about this conversation, Kathy, I, two, two words kept popping up in my head. One is, is culture as something that's inside us, mm -hmm. not something that's out there. It's, it's inside us. And that leads to the other word. If, if I have a message today that I want to get out to the world, it's that we've got to combine our notions of mindfulness with our understanding of culture. That mindfulness is not some kind of a, a meditation process. Mindfulness is situational awareness of how culture inside us and around us is really dominating our thinking. And if we don't become aware of how much our thinking is culturally determined, culturally at the level of nation, uh, you all come from different countries and different ethnicities, that's a big layer. Culture at the level of an organization, and then inside the organization, the occupation you come from, the engineering culture is different from the finance culture, and then right down to the work group, where we now get to my quick definition of culture. Culture is the accumulated learning you've had in your group experience. So you learn the culture of your family. You learn the culture of your schools and your education. And when you entered Google, you had to learn the culture not only of the, the corporation called Google, but of your own particular work group. So don't think of culture as anything other than accumulated learning that sits inside you as one of your layers of consciousness. And becoming more aware of that, I think, is crucial. Now, the other dimension of culture, and then I'll, I'll shut up. I don't want to use up all the air time here. Culture Why can be. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's your air time. <laughs> <laughs> to analyze culture, when people say, okay, Ed, you've described it, but how do we analyze it? You have to think of it at three different levels. When we arrived here, we saw what the anthropologists would call the, the artifacts or the artifices or the creations of culture. The buildings, the way people dress, uh, the structures, how you get into the place, all that stuff is the visible, feelable, smellable, hearable part of culture, which is real, but is just the surface manifestation. It's not below, it's above what is down below, which I think of as the DNA of the culture. In between that is the layer that we like to talk about, which is what I call the espoused values. If someone says, why do you people at Google do it this way? Then you'll come up with, because we're creative, we're fast, we're uh, team-based, we're... Those words are espoused values. They are not necessarily what is even the deeper level that would explain in detail your day-to-day -day behavior. I think of that as your taken-for-granted assumptions. It's sort of the automatic way you learn to behave around here. That may mean something as subtle as 
Well, if we meet one of our founders, how do I relate to that person? You know, you're not necessarily going to learn that from the espoused value level. You're going to learn that from observing by talking to older employees and say, you know, how do you, how do you really handle it when you get nervous in your group meeting or when you think it's too competitive and it's not supposed to be? That's the DNA of the culture. And that will reflect the US culture, the management culture, broadly speaking, uh, and then the corporate culture of Google and your own department. So what we need to get conscious of is that deeper level. It's not about, is it a nice place to work? It's about what's the deeper reality of what it means to work here and how you get along. Mm -hmm. So culture and mindfulness are, in that sense, my key messages. So in the, um, as you're saying that, I'm imagining <coughs> all of us going through our day trying to take into account all of those layers. And um, it's a lot, it's a lot to take in. And, um, and thinking, how, how do you... Um, guide people to develop the capacity to be aware and mindful in a in an in a complex environment where not only are there many layers but the um, the volume of work is high and the pace of work is fast so you're sort of torn between a, a process consciousness if you will and getting pulled into the task at hand. And how do you advise people to cultivate the capacity to um, stay self-aware even in that complexity? That's a great question because it forces us into some countercultural thinking. If, if you look at how rampant individualistic competitive US society trains you, it's all about you, the person. You know, what are your talents? Uh, uh, what, are, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Uh, all the measures of people are around their individual capacities and talents and so on. And what's missed in that is that particularly in an organization like this one that espouses teamwork and the belief that really great ideas come about from a lot of interaction, the first principle is to become less self-conscious and more what one of my heroes, Irving Goffman, would call interaction conscious. Mm -hmm. Think a bit more like the, the social psychologist who says, what's going on here between these people rather than how am I doing? You know, we are so overtrained on how am I doing and am I doing well and getting feedback and the reward system is all about my accomplishments. But the reality of work, I suspect, is all about your relationships to people. So one of the big points that comes out of humble inquiry and helping is it's about the relationship, stupid. If you don't understand how relationships form, if you don't learn a bit of sociology on what is it that, that people do when they date 
Or how's, why is there all this talk about, is this a date or not? What, what are those words about? What's a date? A date is a relational concept. Or what's a superior subordinate relationship? You, you can't talk about <clears throat> this individually. You have to talk about it situationally. And so learning more about relationships is what humble inquiry and helping and humble consulting is really all about. Interesting. Um, one of the one of the things you talk about in the book in terms of relationships that struck me was the <coughs> my words not yours but the increased responsibility that one has for inquiry for humble inquiry as status increases and it struck me in thinking about how do we help leaders um, see and take on that responsibility. So when there's a when when status is at play, what are some of the things that leaders can do um, to create this um, the psychological safety or the safe space within which um, creativity and um, problems can be solved? Okay, that's that's a difficult one because <clears throat> if a leader were sitting here today. I would say you have to become situationally aware to whether the problem you're trying to solve or what's worrying you is a simple problem to which you have the answer. In which case, fine, tell, tell your subordinate what to do because you know you've been there, you know all about it. But if we discover that what's really worrying you is that you don't know how to get a bunch of subgroups to work together. You're discovering that uh, the, there's a loss of alignment mm -hmm. between various of your subordinates or the groups or the subcultures. Now, telling them what to do isn't going to work. The complexity, the systemic interconnections are too complicated. So you have to get past thinking that you know what to do, accept your ignorance, and that's where the word humility comes in. Mm -hmm. Humility is acknowledging that there are some things I don't know how to do, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or there is some bit of knowledge that I don't have. Now, we've projected this onto the senior leaders, but it applies to everyone in this room. There are situations where you know what to do and are experienced, but a lot of situations that you encounter daily, if you're honest with yourself, you don't really know what's going on, you don't really know what to do, and in those situations, you have to let your curiosity and your humility surface and become dominant. Humble inquiry is the acknowledgement that sometimes the other person, whether it's a subordinate or a boss or a peer, knows something that you need to know in order to accomplish your next task. So it's, it's probably the most practical suggestion we can have in a complex world, is to get curious and ask questions. Don't think you already know, mm -hmm. because chances are, if it's complex, you probably got the wrong answer. It's interesting as you're saying that, and I'm thinking as I imagine some of you are about 
context in which <coughs> on our best days we could be curious and ask questions. And on some days, either we feel we have to prove ourselves or we feel it isn't, um, there isn't time for asking questions. And so let me push this a step farther and say, if I know intellectually the best thing to do is to be curious and ask questions and acknowledge externally what I know internally, which is I actually don't have all the answers, how do I train myself to do that in circumstances when the cost of admitting ignorance feels high or the cost of taking the time feels high. So, so if I kind of know it's the right answer, are there things I can do with the group or to train myself? Um, how do we help people push through with that behavior change even when it's when the conditions um, feel difficult for that. I, I don't know this is, whether this is easy to do or not, but mm -hmm. two, two thoughts occur. One is to become more personal, which is paradoxical. Mm -hmm. I think society trains us to be mostly transactional. Uh, particularly in business, you know, you're supposed to have professional relationships and professional distance is good. The therapist is not supposed to sleep with the patient, that's bad. <laughs> and, but we then also apply it to uh, fraternization in the military, the officers are not supposed to fraternize with the troops. So we have this huge managerial overlay that stay transactional. And again, in, simple, in a simple world, that's probably okay. But the minute things get complex and interpersonally diffuse, transactions no longer work. You have to somehow acknowledge that this is now personal. Two or three of us are competing, mm -hmm. and this doesn't feel good, and I don't know what to do about it. The first thing is to acknowledge to yourself that this is personal mm -hmm. and maybe the best thing to do, and that's the other point, is to go to process rather than content. Mm -hmm. Rather than say, okay, it's personal and I'm going to show this other person that I'm brighter and smarter so I'm just going to argue even more. Mm -hmm. Or I might say, God forbid, why are we arguing about this? Is there some common element here? And that means, am I putting my career in jeopardy by not winning? Mm -hmm. and I think we have to ask, that's a tough question in your environment. Is it better to win or is it better to personalize and build relationships where collectively we end up with a better solution but God forbid, I might not get all the credit. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. That's embedded in your culture. Mm -hmm. But I'm suggesting you have the choice of not content competing mm -hmm. and say, you know, let me prove to you why my idea is better. Instead say, wait a minute, why are we competing here? And maybe we should look at the two answers and how they combine or are you as uncomfortable as I am about how we're arguing here? 
Personalization means exposing the process of what's going on between us. And I would think in this kind of organization that espouses teamwork, that's a very natural direction for you to go, is to get more personal mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than more argumentative. Mm -hmm. And to let competition go in the interests of better solutions and better answers and hope that the people above you recognize the value of that. But it's a personal decision. If you end up with a boss who only likes winners, then you're stuck. And if, if you really believe this alternative way might be better, then find another group. Mm -hmm. Because I think the US managerial culture is hooked on winning and competition, and it's all about the individual. So I'm very aware, as, as the book Humble Inquiry must leak out, I'm very critical of competition and rampant individualism brought inside an organization. Mm -hmm. That may be great for capitalism in, writ in large, but I think it's a disaster when you bring it inside an organization and have what this one executive once said to his subordinates, this was the CEO who said to his VPs, now I want you all to be a team. This is a team process. But don't forget for a minute that you're all competing for my job. <laughs> now, how are you supposed to? Right, which message was louder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Well, I want to go two directions with what you said, so I'll go one and then, and then the other. And, and one is triggered by some of the questions that some of my colleagues um, I know were interested in, which is, as, as for, for those of us who are women, some of what you're suggesting can be, um, can feel even harder. Um, and do you have any particular advice for women to be able to um, follow the, that kind of inquiry path without falling into a, a process stereotype or an, uh, a less competitive stereotype? Okay, I'm gonna pick you up on one word, Kathy. <coughs> I, I don't, what? All right, Kathy, Karen, I'll, I'll answer He's to anything. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> I don't give advice. Oh, man, okay. <laughs> but you've triggered some thoughts. I think it is alleged, and you'll have to tell me whether this is changing with millennials and so on, that women really do learn to be more relational from the outset, mm -hmm. particularly if, if they become mothers <laughs> and find that you, you cannot deal with children in a transactional way. <laughs> it mm -hmm. gets acutely personal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the skills that women bring that are relational should, in principle, make a a woman-run organization different. But I'm not sure whether that happens. I I'm, I'm think the, the managerial culture is a male-originated dominant culture. And I think a lot of women feel that unless they give up their feminine skills, uh, 
and adapt to the masculine competitive environment, they're not going to make it. So I see it more as a dilemma. I do think women bring something different, but whether they can actually exercise it effectively in a traditional organization is a real, real question in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I've seen good examples and bad examples. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's no relevant advice except be yourself and uh, figure out what's better for you if you're a woman to, to play the male competitive game or to mm -hmm. say, I'm going to do this thing differently. I'm going to relate differently to people. I'm going to be more personal and see whether that works better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. So the other direction, um, your earlier comments about kind of culture and what's happening here triggered for me was, again, something that we spoke about quite briefly, which was the observations you have on the kind of the what happened to the Digital Equipment Corporation. And I wonder if you could share with us um, a couple of the lessons that you would hope that we as a as an organization might learn from DEC rather than having to learn it ourselves. That's <clears throat> that's very important part of my life. I somehow managed because I was an MIT professor to be accepted <coughs> by Ken Olson, the founder and president of DEC, as a consultant because he was a true engineer, but because of that, he said, we probably aren't so great at communication in groups, so why don't you come and sit in? That led to 25 years of consulting, <laughs> watching DEC grow and become the number two computer company in the world mm -hmm. uh, behind IBM, and in the late 80s, uh, level off and decline until it got taken over by Compaq. So I ended up actually writing a book, which I recommend to you, called Deck is Dead, Long Live Deck. Because during its heyday, during its successes, Deck believed itself to be the most creative, the most fun, the most exciting company in the world. And if you talk to ex-Deck people, they will say, those were the best years of my life. It was fabulous. So what how is it possible that that could all go wrong? And the, the metaphor that, that really struck me most was that when DEC was young, it was a bunch of creative engineers creating a whole new industry. What could be more exciting than that? That sounds a little bit familiar with early Google, doesn't it? Uh, that's a wonderful time to be, and at that point, Everyone is creative, everyone is valued, ideas are what it's all about. Mm -hmm. But you then produce some products and lo and behold, they're successful. Wow. So now you get promoted. And now you have a bigger organization and at the same time, you yourself <coughs> age. So 10 years in now, we're very successful and what I observe is, in the initial conversations in the top group of DEC, people were rampantly arguing with each other because they were after the truth. What should our next product be? 
They were betting the company. They were using their intellectual tools to the full. It was a nasty environment because people were really fighting for their ideas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was a totally exciting creative environment. Fast forward 10 years, these same people are now in their 30s and they've all been promoted into being engineering managers or product line managers and they've got organizations. And now I'm in that same group of seven or eight people and they're deciding the next round of products. And the argument sounds equally vehement and exciting, but I have this horrible feeling that they're now all arguing as representatives of their organizations. Hmm. They suddenly are not the individual creative engineer, but they're the head of a group. And they're very conscious that if their product isn't the one picked, maybe a hundred or a thousand people will be out of work. Now that transition from being the individual creator to being responsible for a lot of other people destroys a certain level of creativity and innovation. And it's inevitable. You can't say, well, I'm just as creative as I was in my 20s when I was the lone creator. It's different. Now these groups get bigger and they become empires. And the shortest explanation I have of how DEC failed is the empires began to fight with each other. It was no longer just individuals making you know, a point, but there were in fact three different products. There was the Alta Vista search engine, there was a big water-cooled computer that was being produced, and there was the Alpha chip. And the heads of those organizations each sincerely believed that they were the deck of the future. But complexity intervened. Mm -hmm. Each of those three were no longer simple products. They were now very complicated technologies, required more resources. And the environment was saying, you've got to focus. You can't do it all anymore mm -hmm. because each project is too complex. And at that point, those three barons could not relate to each other. They fought, and they fought to the death, and that meant they started to steal resources from each other. They began to exaggerate the market potential of each of their products, and as a result, all three hit the market late, and all three of those products failed, and that made DEC no longer economically viable. So the, the notion that DEC never saw the future, they never understood the strategy, nonsense. They saw it perfectly, but they could not adapt by saying, well, we better mm -hmm. bet on Alta Vista, or we better bet on the, and kill two big projects mm -hmm. and fire thousands of people. So the, the danger in size and age is these other interpersonal forces become very powerful. And I don't know how companies get out of this. 
You know, that's, that's the problem of the people at the top of your organization. How do they keep this from happening to you? Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the reason I'm touting the book is the book not only describes Dick's history, but has a whole big chapter on what happens with age and with growth. Mm -hmm. And you're right at that cusp. Well, and, and this is a terrific group for you to be sharing with because to the extent, tying back to your earlier comments, to the extent that we're conscious and aware, we increase the likelihood that we can ask questions that will help raise some of those issues. So mm -hmm. I think we, we all need to read that book. Um, I'm going to now share the, the pleasure of asking you questions with my colleagues, both in the room and outside of the room. And Kathy, why don't we start with one on the dory, and then um, we'll go to one in the room, and we'll just alternate. Uh, well, I, I don't know if Stephanie is here. Do you want to ask your question? Oh, okay. <laughs> read your question. Google, like many other organizations, similar to what you were just talking about, Google, like many other organizations, is experiencing the challenges of being in an environment characterized by, in all capital letters, V-U-C-A. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yeah. What types of interventions, aside from trying to hone our senior leaders, have you seen as a significant impact on the organization's ability to adapt? Well, I, I think probably the most important example of, of dealing with, with do, you use, do you use VUCA or do you always spell it out? Uh, having defined it, let's stay with VUCA. Okay. <laughs> I think to deal with complexity, one of the great systematic systems theory notions is the system has to be as complex as the environments within which it works. So as the product environment and the political and the economic and other environments get more and more interconnected and, uh, and complex themselves, the organization has to develop <clears throat> that same level of complexity. What that probably means is a lot more differentiation into a lot more different units. Mm. It becomes harder and harder uh, as in the deck case, Ken Olson could no longer centrally grasp these three units. Mm -hmm. It might have been better, if, with hindsight, for deck to, to break into three divisions and let them each forge for themselves. Mm -hmm. So if one had to think in terms of organization design in a systemic way, you've got to differentiate the system and give mm -hmm. more units more of the opportunity to create their own fate, to decentralize more. I don't think it's possible to deal centrally with as complex a world as is, is developing out there. That makes integration more difficult. Mm -hmm. So the leaders now probably themselves become a group rather than an individual, because mm -hmm. they have to be able to represent the varieties of problems mm 
-hmm. that your different product lines, your different technologies, your different subunits are generating. So I don't know if that answers that question, but I think it means systemic complexity cannot be captured by central single ideas, mm -hmm. by definition. Very interesting. Thanks, Stephanie, for a good question. Is there a live question in the room? Yes. Do me a favor and wait for the mic just so that those who are joining us virtually can hear your question. To follow up on your last comment, if the if you have to have Move it division, closer to your mouth. If you have yeah. to have divisions and divisions have division leaders and the division leaders have to sit in a room and make group decisions, but all the division leaders believe that they're going to be fired if their division fails, don't you how do you have the uh, relational conversation in that room. Uh, complexity covers problem solving as well as reality. I think uh, the other company that I was consulting with at the same time as DEC was Sipa Geigy, which was a big chemical giant that had to face uh, the loss of the chemical sector, basically. Chemistry was, was, had been uh, overproduced over and gradually turned themselves into a pharmaceutical company and that became part of what is today Novartis. So I saw them struggling with how does one destroy a whole sector of a business. And what they did was they did it in as human a way as possible. They, they knew that they had to let thousands of people go, but they created a process that made them still feel we are a humane, responsible company by, first of all, slowing it down through not replacing retirements, by having uh, generous buyouts, by giving people consulting jobs, by bringing in very good counseling services so that you don't avoid the tough economic decision, but you handle what you have to do in a way that still makes you feel that you're not being just uh, a cruel, unthinking kind of organization, but that you're still the organization that you always tried to be. One of the principles of that, by the way, was that you never let somebody go through HR or personnel. The boss has to face the individual mm -hmm. and say, John or Mary, your job has gone away. And so we're going to have to figure out what you will have to do next. And here are some options. But we have to have that face-to-face -face conversation. And they ended up having to train some of their supervisors how to do that. Mm -hmm. But the notion that personal things work, people treat each other as adults when they get personal rather than as commodities. Uh, the movie, What Up in the Air, mm -hmm. is uh, the, the worst example of what organizations are finding themselves doing. Mm -hmm. 
is to be fired by a, a hired consultant, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. effect, or even worse, by a screen, as I recall. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah. personalization becomes a very critical concept in all my thinking, that even though seven or eight people, actually Sibagaygi was run by a group of 11, and they had all these different departments and functions, they got to be very close personally. And one way they dealt with the difficulty is they had over the years rotated divisional responsibility mm -hmm. among themselves so that there would be real empathy. If I'm product A and saying product B has got to go, I've managed product B mm -hmm. and I know what it is I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So you get a more personal process at that level, hopefully, rather than a bureaucratic process that's just driven by financials. That's the one way I've seen it happen. They did a good job of downsizing the agricultural sector and the chemical sector and beginning to lean almost exclusively toward pharmaceuticals. Um, it, it's useful to always find cases rather than look for generalizations. Mm -hmm. If you have a question, how do you do something, find someone who's done it mm -hmm. and see how they did it, rather than looking for a formula off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Kathy, is there another question in the dory? Questions on the dory. Uh, so Trista, who's in our Seattle office, asks, uh, many people in PeopleDev consult with our, um, our business clients, and we also want to evaluate our own work. How do we evaluate or measure, or how do you evaluate or measure your consulting work? And do you have any guidance on how we might evaluate our consulting engagements? One of the, the traps of the US culture is that somewhere along the line, we bought into the science model that everything has to be numerical. So I believe in measurement but I don't believe it has to be quantitative numerical measurement. Mm -hmm. So what do I measure? If I'm in a long project with a client, first thing I would do is to have a conversation about how should we, too, collectively measure whether we're getting anywhere or not. You have a piece of that, I have a piece of that. Either one of us can say this isn't working and bow out. Now, that may not be economically the best for the consultant, <laughs> but that's one way to measure, is to collectively build a unit. In my more rapid kind of consulting, which I've found myself doing much more out here, which often is just one hour or a long lunch, and I feel that something has been accomplished I very much go by whether at the end of that lunch or the end of that hour, we're both feeling good and both think this has been helpful. And if, if the client is just saying, well, yes, that's been very helpful, I can tell by the tone of voice mm -hmm. that this has not worked. But if, if the person goes away from that hour and say, gee, that was fun, you know, that was good, that's enough of a measurement for me that this is working. So it goes back to situational awareness. I think we evaluate moment to moment. And in this next 
book, Humble Consulting, I'll talk a lot about how these things have to be measured from the moment of initial contact. We don't scout and analyze and diagnose and then figure out what to do. The moment I'm with a client, I'm doing. I'm in it. Mm -hmm. And I evaluate moment by moment whether this is a good conversation. I have to work that way uh, all the time. When, when we sat down for lunch, I have to ask myself, you know, is this lunch working? Are we getting connected? Mm -hmm. So I put the measurement evaluation process in the here and now. Because it's quite possible that we will work for a couple of years on a project and the numbers won't reflect anything. Does that mean it's been a failure? People ask me, well, you, you consulted for digital for 25 years and they went under. So you must not have done your job, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my fellow consultants and I, and there were many other consultants at DEC, figured out what the correct answer is to that challenge. The answer is, if we hadn't been there, they would have gone under much sooner. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, I actually, in, in all truth, imagine that the people you taught while you were there, whatever they went on to do afterwards, were richer and more aware people than they would have been had you not been there. That's my assumption. Uh, is there another live question in the room? Yes. Great. Mike is on the way. So you, you've given great advice for uh, larger organizations. Uh, does your advice change at all for the budding entrepreneur? Because the Valley is full of, as well, folks that are thinking of going out there and starting their own thing. OK, back to I don't give advice. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I would take that on a personal basis. I would want to know what is that person trying to do and what's worrying them and uh, not to assume again that there is a formula for what young entrepreneurs should do. One of the, the biggest aspects of that <clears throat> is the changing technological scene. I gave talks to young entrepreneurs in the, in the 60s and they were, they were all building stuff. You know, they, they were making other kinds of computers and so on and so on. And I noticed that when the software world began to infiltrate and take over, those questions changed. Mm -hmm. It's no longer a matter of, of a little uh, shop where you build something. <laughs> it's now suddenly a, a different kind of intellectual enterprise and you're now selling ideas or something entirely different. So what does it even mean to be an entrepreneur in today's range of technologies? Uh, what does it mean to develop a new app for the iPhone? It's a completely different question from how do I build a new computer or a new car? Uh, I guess you're now in both kinds of businesses, mm -hmm. right? You have, you're building products as, as well as these very abstract things that 
that I don't even know how to conceptualize and talk about. Uh, so I have to ask my son, what, what is an app anyway? <laughs> what, is, what does it mean to sit down and do a better job of programming? You know, those, those are not questions that entrepreneurs used to ask before we invented all this stuff. So it's, it's very situational. But the thing I noticed in my career studies, and I studied a lot of MIT alums and other people, and there was always a subset who wanted to build their own companies, who were entrepreneurial. And what I noticed about them was that they were driven people. They had often sold magazines as, as uh, high schoolers. Mm -hmm. They, they, were in, they were not as academic. They were not the A-plus students. They were the A-minus students. Why? Because they were too busy doing stuff to really worry about getting the best grade. Uh, and they noticed that the world didn't value pure grades as much as the ability to get things done, to be creative. So I guess if, if that's a general characteristic of people like this, you have to honor your own drives and say, well, what is it I'm prepared to suffer for? <laughs> because these ideas have grabbed me, and by God, I recently watched an interview that I recommend to all of you that I get, got on Netflix called Steve Jobs' Lost Interview. Apparently, he was collared for an hour and 10 minutes by a very good interviewer and really asked a lot of very personal questions about how he thought about things. It's a gripping interview to see how he kept coming back to some ideas he couldn't let go. No matter what else was going on, something was always there. And that, to me, is a, a mark of an entrepreneur, because if you don't have that, the early failures are going to kill you. You're going to get discouraged. That something has to reemerge, and it no, it's not necessarily very articulate, but it's something that drives you. That's one of the things I learned from studying entrepreneurs. Very interesting. Kathy, you My question was uh, in relationship to some internal research that we've done lately around the characteristics of the highest performing and most effective teams uh, here at Google. And so I was just curious uh, in your career, some of the things that you've come up with, you've seen that exhibited by the most effective teams that you've worked with. There's a lot of research on that. And I think a lot, again, depends on what they're doing. Uh, you know, one of the earliest studies of, of leadership was uh, done way in the 50s on basketball teams where you had a very clear criterion of whether you win or not. And at that point, one of the interesting findings was that the winning teams had leaders who were clearer about the difference between my best people and my worst people than less effective teams 
who had leaders that said, my people are more or less alike. And that's an interesting bit of mm -hmm. research that may not apply to research teams, but it, it does connect with Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. who kept saying it's all about the A players. And if you're a, not an A player, I don't want you on the team. So this, this notion of knowing who has really the talents for the particular tasks, maybe one, one characteristic. But from my point of view, an even more important characteristic is the ability to become a team. And there's a concept that some of you may have become familiar with that Amy Edmondson calls teaming. She's written a book called Teaming. Mm -hmm. The notion there is that you don't become a team by just getting to know each other. You become a team by joint learning in a difficult situation. When a group of people who may think of themselves as a team suddenly have to face a new challenge that none of them have separately faced, and they have to learn together that forces a level of personalization that may not have been there before. And that will be crucial to better performance at a later time. So if I were managing teams, I would probably invent problems for them that force them into, into joint learning. Because I couldn't assume that just because they've been together and they say they like each other, that's not enough. It has to be joint learning that really creates a team. Those are the things that surface for me. Mm -hmm. you, you would be interested, I think, to know the study that Adam is referring to found that the, the variable that, um, that most indicates that the team will be effective is psychological safety. Um, and that felt, as I was reading Humble Inquiry, um, certainly felt like a precondition for uh, inquiry to exist. Uh, were you uh, familiar with Amy Edmondson's work on this? Yeah, because she's made a huge issue of psychological yep. safety. Uh, and and that, that goes back to my earlier stuff on psychological contract mm -hmm. that <clears throat> uh, that surfaces that any time we're in a work relationship, and this could be applied to team members, what's the contract you have with your team members? And does it include that I can be totally me, or do I have mm -hmm. to play a certain kind of a role? And certainly psychological safety would suggest that you wanna lean toward making it as personally possible to be yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're the, the leader of the group, you go heavily into creating an environment where people will feel safe. To me, that's one of the biggest pathologies in, in the US system, is that managers have the notion that if you're a responsible subordinate, you will tell me what's going on. Instead of realizing that unless I deliberately create psychological safety for you, there is no particular incentive for you <laughs> to tell me what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So as a boss, you have to really create that environment. Mm -hmm. You can't assume it. 
what would you leave us with as we try to do our, our best work as folks who attend to, attend to process in a um, fast and intelligent and competitive organization? What would you leave us with as we go out into our, our days and weeks and years? I, I'd come back to uh, mindfulness, mm -hmm. Ellen Langer style. If you haven't read Alan Langer's stuff, you really should do that because mm -hmm. she's, she sort of was the creator of the concept along these psychological lines. <clears throat> and the question that, that she asks that I would leave you with is, whenever you're in an experience, stop and say to yourself, what else is going on? There's the thing that captures you, but what else is going on? Mm -hmm. What else is going on in this room right now? What else is going on between the two of us? There's so much of experience that's available that we gloss over or ignore, and the real learning is often in the what else is going on. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Thank you so much. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery and more, at Safety Differently Merchandise, is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the New View. Please visit the store and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.